Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekend. I'm Allison Kaplan-Sommer here in our Tel Aviv studio. On today's show, what is happening to ultra-Orthodox Jews in the United States? The COVID pandemic and the turbulent politics of the Trump era seem to have sparked a political transformation. We'll talk to Professor Joshua Shaines, who is helping to lead a group of scholars who are working to put their finger on what happened in what they are calling a 2020 moment. But first, let's catch up on the ever-turbulent and confusing saga of Israel's current government coalition led by Prime Minister Naftali Bennett. Joining me in the studio is a familiar voice to our listeners, Haaretz podcast host Amir Tibon. Before he took to the airwaves, of course, Amir covered Israeli politics and diplomacy, and he served as our Haaretz correspondent in Washington, D.C. And now he's got a new title. Amir, welcome to this very familiar studio, and congratulations on being named deputy editor of Haaretz English Edition. Thank you, Alison, and it's such a pleasure to share the studio together. Whenever we do that, it's usually the best episode. <laughs> So before we delve into the headlines of the moment of the last 24 hours, can we like try to take a longer view of what's happened? Because it feels like, you know, exactly a year ago, the Israeli parties from different parts of the political spectrum, from the right wing to the Islamist Arab party, came together in this weird government led by Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid. And everyone's skeptical, right? It's not going to hold together for long. But it did. It managed to pass all these tests. It passed a budget. It survived waves of COVID-19. It got a lot of neglected ministries functioning again after sort of paralysis in the Netanyahu era. And it managed for quite a while to avoid getting into ideological fights about settlements, the occupations, etc. And then last March, just before Passover, um, felt like the wheels started to come off. And since then, it's been kind of this spiral, you know, like this car rolling along and this piece falls off and that piece falls off. And now it's like barely holding on by its fingernails. It's considered almost doomed. What happened in that period of time between March and now? So first of all, I do think, Alison, you mentioned something very important, which is the one-year mark. Right. And, and I think if we sat in this studio a year ago, and we were putting bets, will this weird government... We probably so, did. <laughs> we, yes, but I don't know if we put a bet on it. Um, would it even last a year? I think both of us probably would have said no way. Like between Naftali Bennett, Yamina, you know, literally further to the right is the name of the prime minister's small party. And Meretz on the left having an equal number of seats and the Islamist party. We probably would have said this thing maybe maybe lasts until the end of 2021, um, and then God knows. And yet, we've reached that point of, of the one-year mark. So I think that's the first issue. And then the second issue you mentioned in late March, Edith Silman, a member of Bennett's party who used to be the coalition whip, one morning shocks the country by announcing that she's leaving the coalition and basically ending Bennett's majority in the Knesset and in the Israeli system. Being prime minister is very nice, but if you don't have a majority in the Knesset, you're paralyzed. You can't do anything. It's even worse than an American president losing the majority in Congress after the midterms, which is probably what President Biden is looking at, because at least the uh, executive and the legislative in America are so clearly separate. But here in Israel, a prime minister without a majority in the Knesset, it, it's worse than a lame duck. It, it's a duck that's almost in the oven by that point. <laughs> um, but but even with Silman, I think, again, if, if we had this conversation two months ago and we said, how long are they going to last without a majority? 
I'm not sure we would have marked uh, the middle of June where we are headed uh, as a point in time where there will still be a functioning government. So they're stumbling from one disaster to another, from one embarrassment to the next, but they're still holding together. And uh, who knows how long they need. Basically, I think the benchmark everybody's looking at right now is the end of the summer session in the Knesset. Uh, July 27, I think, is the date. Right. Uh, because when that happens, the Knesset goes into a lengthy two months break. It's wonderful to be a member of Knesset in the sky. I think we should also do here at Haaretz. Great like a, work a schedule. Two, two months <laughs> break, uh, you know, between uh, August and uh, the holidays, the high holidays. Um, uh, but if they reach that point, when the Knesset is not in session, you cannot have a vote to disperse the Knesset and call new elections. And so that would give them a few more months of holding on, and maybe something will happen in that period of time that will improve their situation. Um, I do want to ask you, though, as a resident of Ranana, Prime Minister <laughs> Bennett's uh, hometown, and with all of the noise that we've heard about his home being renovated and the security services turning it into some kind of a mini fortress, I mean... Maybe for you guys, it's a sign of hope that yeah, he's on the brink. So. We hope so. My daughter's in uh, in high school with his son, who has, you know, she's got the uh, the heavy security around her uh, her high school. Yeah, no, the residents of Renana are definitely wanting the coalition to uh, to go down for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But what about this crazy, crazy vote this week about uh, the f- every five year renewal of? basically, right, the application of Israeli law in the West Bank. And um, D- did you know that this thing happens every Friday? I had no idea. I had no idea. <laughs> I mean, this is a bit embarrassing for us. Yeah, we, yeah. we write about these things. We cover the policies. I had no idea that this thing needs to be renewed every five years because you, we've, we've never heard about it before. Right. But isn't the kind of this the kind of thing that the prime minister should see coming down the pike and get ready for instead of having it, you know, sneak up on him like this? So but uh, just when looking at this crazy, crazy vote, you've got the right wing and the settlers voting against their own interests in order to try to bring down the government. And you've got the coalition trying to convince the Arab members of their own coalition to vote in favor of it, basically against the interests of Palestinians in order to keep the government together. It's black is white and white is black. For First of all, I think you're right that they didn't identify this one. I mean, what we heard all the time since the Silman uh, resignation, well, not even a resignation, you know, leaving the coalition, is that the government is going to have a very tough stretch during the holidays when you had Passover and Ramadan together, and then Independence Day and Nakba Day for the Palestinians, and then Jerusalem Day with the flag march and all of those tensions, but that if the government survived all of these holidays um, and the potential for disaster that they brought with them, there will be a more peaceful era then until the end of the summer session. And nobody highlighted this issue of the regulations concerning the Israeli control of the West Bank. Gideon Saul did. Gideon Saul, you know, threatened already a couple of weeks ago that if this thing doesn't pass, you know, the future of this coalition is doomed, et cetera, et cetera. It's true. He he actually made a big deal out of it, but the political commentators who get briefed, obviously, by the politicians, nobody wrote that this is going to be the crisis that will bring down the government. It's the opposite. We heard that if they survived Jerusalem Day, which they did, without a war with Hamas... And Ramadan. and, And without tensions, you know, spilling over with the Islamists party, you know, Mansour Abbas's party, then they will be okay. And suddenly these regulations that, like you said, are a very technical thing. Every five years, the Israeli Knesset has voted since 1967 to renew these regulations that keep in place the military control 
uh, of the West Bank while giving civilian rights to the Israeli settlers who live there. And I, I think the important thing to, to say about this issue is that the fact that the regulations didn't pass in the, in the Knesset doesn't mean that now the settlers are in some kind of danger. I know that there have been people who gave this uh, analysis, perhaps you know, wishful thinking, but at the end of the day, the right-wing majority in the Israeli Knesset, which is opposition and coalition, you mm-hmm. have right-wingers in, on both sides, is not going to let this fall. We're right. not going to get the Wild West Bank with no, 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 no laws, no, no, no rules no, or no, regulations. No, I think <laughs> what, the, 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 what Likud and the, the religious parties in opposition are doing here, they're basically trying to create a wedge inside the coalition and lead to a situation where the coalition, the government, collapses over this, and then they will very, very quickly turn around and help the right-wing parties in government secure a majority for it, and also... So wait, it, not two elections to, to actually create a right-wing e- e- majority? E- either a right-wing majority, or, also it's important to say, if the Knesset dissolves itself and we go to new elections, the regulations are automatically renewed until a new government is formed. So either way, the settlers are not going to be the losers here. The losers are going to be the members of the government, right-wing and left-wing. But I do have a question for you. Um, if you are a member of Knesset today from Meretz, and this vote comes up, and you are completely ideologically opposed to Israeli control of the West Bank and settlements, and you believe in a two-state solution, but you know that this is a vote that could threaten the future of the government because Gidon Saar, who is a right-wing member of this government, has really made a big deal out of it and said it has to pass and all the coalition has to support it and we have to have a united front. What do you do? I think I would do exactly what Mansour Abbas did this week. The Ram Party said, if the survival of the coalition can be saved as a result of us voting against our beliefs, yeah, I'll do it. I'll vote against my ideological beliefs in order to save the government. But if it looks like the Titanic is going down anyway, you know, why should I stay on the ship? I'm going to jump off. And so, you know, that's the way this vote went this week. And do you think there's any hope that there will be any better result when it comes to a vote again next week? Why? <laughs> right? I mean, that's what's I mean, listen, I try to be optimistic as a point of view. So I understand optimistic people. I understand that if somebody wants this government to survive, like, you know, we hear these ministers and members of Knesset go on the radio. I heard this morning on the way to Haaretz, um, I think the communications minister, Yoaz Hendel, he's a member of SARS party, say very, very definitely, we're going to bring it to another vote. We're going to get what we need. What's the source of this optimism? Well, maybe just the fact that now it's very clear to everyone what are the stakes. Mm-hmm. Um, a- a- and you said about Mansour Abbas that, you know, he didn't come to the vote once he saw that there's a, a, a majority. But but I also understand Gidon Saar's argument here, which is basically if this legislation falls because of the opposition, that's a different story, right? Because if we look at the numbers game, there are 60 members of this coalition right now. And there are 59 members of the opposition. There's Edith Silman, the you know resigning Silman in the middle. And I think Saar's argument is, if all of the 60 members of the coalition vote in favor of the regulations, and then the entire opposition plus Silman vote against it, and that's the reason it doesn't pass, that gives a very strong political weapon to the right-wing parties in the coalition to put all the pressure on Likud and to put all the pressure on Smotrich, the leader of the far-right party who's also in the opposition, to basically come and say, even Meretz, even the Arab members of Knesset understood that this routine 
legislation needs to pass. And you are the ones responsible for what's going to happen now to all the settlers that are going to potentially lose their... You think that's going to change their behavior? You think that's going to lessen their determination to bring down this coalition? No way. I'm not sure, but I think this is the calculation he's making. He's, he's, he's ah. making that, that, a campa- that this will open the door for a very aggressive campaign to put, and we've already seen, by the way, some of the settler leaders who are concerned, I think for no reason, by the way, I'm, I'm sure this mm. will be resolved because at the end of the day, Ayelet Shaked is the Minister of the Interior and Benny Gantz is the Minister of Defense and Gidon Sari is the Minister of Justice. And so these are all people that are not going to let the settlers lose their right to have a, a social security. Abituach Lumi, as we call it here in Israel. But still, I think Gidon Sar would like to have a unified coalition behind this and put all the pressure on Likud. And I don't know, maybe that works. Uh, I, I mean, do you oh, see... Do, do you I, see, I do still you don't see think B, that works. You see Bibi Netanyahu and Smotrich in that scenario being the ones bringing down the pro-settlers legislation? Yes, if it serves their larger goal of getting rid of this government, 100%. Interesting. We'll see. We'll see how soon after you're being named deputy editor, you get to cover another election. No, Ellison, please. Please. <laughs> no. I mean, uh, you know, I love big news events. We all we all want them. A Biden visit is a nice big news Doesn't event. Doesn't look like that's happening soon either. Oh, so. yeah. It's, it's all stuck together. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll have to keep uh, following this. And of course, if you're interested in learning more about this very weird political crisis in Israel, go on haaretz.com. find our great reporting and analysis. We'll keep updating. Thanks so much, Amir. And coming up, we'll have Professor Joshua Shanes on the changing role of the ultra-Orthodox community. I'm thrilled to welcome to the podcast Professor Joshua Shanes. He is a professor of Jewish studies and the director of the Arnold Center for Israel Studies at the College of Charleston in Charleston, South Carolina. He is also a frequent commentator on our opinion pages here at Haaretz. Full disclosure, I taught for a semester in Charleston and was incredibly impressed by Josh's ability to convey the complexities of Israel to students in the U.S. South, some of whom had never met anyone Jewish before, let alone anyone Israeli. Josh, welcome to the hot and humid Mideast from the hot and humid American South. Thank you so much. It's a delight to be here. So, Josh, here in Israel, we're used to keeping our finger on the pulse of the ultra-Orthodox community and their political leanings because they represent such a crucial part of our government coalitions, of our electorate, just of our political landscape in general. But they haven't been very closely watched or considered much of a factor in the U.S. political scene. Why is that? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, Part of the issue for uh, Jews in particular, the Haredim have been sort of exoticized and othered and seen as something that's hiding out in certain neighborhoods, but aren't especially important politically or culturally. And that's beginning to change, and especially in the last couple of years, and even before that, uh, from the moment of Trump's ascendancy to the presidency. The uh, appearance of Haredim, especially in 2020 with the rise of COVID, with the, uh, uh, the issues in terms of vaccinations and, and uh, quarantining and so on, and with the relationship with Trump and the dramatic difference between Haredi voting patterns and non-Orthodox voting patterns, 
And you couple all of that with suddenly the surprise popularity of Stiesel, which it was, I think, American demands that got us that third season. You're welcome. Uh, and also uh, other programs on Orthodox uh, and My Unorthodox Life and things like that. And suddenly people are very interested in them. And I think that's only going to grow uh, as the population of Haredim grows. Right. The demographic growth is tremendous. I mean, we're used to looking at it here in Israel, but again, in the United States, it's also significant. It's absolutely astounding. You know, according to a new report from one of our uh, uh, group members, Daniel Statsky, uh, by 2040, Haredim are going to constitute about a fifth of all American Jews and certainly much more, a much higher percentage in, in the New York area. Uh, okay, you uh, you reference your group members. To, uh, that's why we're here to talk about um, this, you know, I don't want to call it an organization, but this group that you're now a part of called the uh, Haredi Research Group. It was initiated by uh, Professor David Myers at UCLA. Uh, you joined forces with him. So tell us about this group. You guys just unveiled a website and a report, uh, an extensive report. What's the bottom line of this report? What's the message? Sure, thank you. Well, first of all, uh, people can go. It's it's a very cleverly titled HarediResearchGroup.org, so, and not so hard to remember. Catchy. Yeah, it's very, very <laughs> catchy. Historians aren't very clever with that sort of marketing. We just tell it like it is. Um, so, yeah, in 2020, both uh, Professor Myers and I were publishing a lot about uh, the Haredi moment, about Orthodox behavior. I was interested also in modern Orthodox and religious Zionist groups uh, as well. Uh, and we realized something was going on, and we had to gather people who were very interested in research on these groups. And so we went ahead and did so. We gathered about 25 scholars uh, with an eye towards balance, uh, discipline balance, uh, ge geographic balance, gender balance, of course, um, and started producing our first product, which is a significant report on the history and state of Haredi Jews. And the idea was that anyone who's vaguely interested, or even a professor who needs something to assign to his students, a journalist who needs a background, not so much in Israel, I think, but especially outside of Israel, uh, they can go to this report, they can read it, and very quickly get a sense of the history of, of Orthodox Jews, of Haredi Jews in particular, and why they are the way they are. Uh, so, for example, this is just one example. People know about the Haredi resistance to quarantining in, in Brooklyn uh, during the early pandemic. We tried to explain why that is. It wasn't simply because they didn't trust science. You know, there were other aspects of Haredi life people might not, might not have thought about. So, for example, the fact that when you have 10 children in a very tiny apartment and your entire society is structured materially that children can be out of the house, they can be at school during the day, they can be at the playground and so on, Locking down in an apartment like that for weeks on end is no simple matter. Uh, that's just one example of the kinds of things we tried to bring to explain, not justify or glorify or uh, romanticize, but just explain who these people are and what their theology is and what their material life is all about. So on the political side, there's also a little bit of a thesis there about the growing affinity of the Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox uh, community to the ideological, if you want to call them populist, if you want to call them Trumpy, right-wing circles in the United States, many of whom are Christian evangelical, which seems a little um, odd if you, you mm -hmm. know, line that up right, with ultra-Orthodox Jews. Tell me about that thesis that seems to be indicating a shift from like just practical, self-interested politics as a community into this more ideological realm of wanting to shape the United States and its values, you know, and how it touches on these very uh, 
hot button issues of LGBT rights, abortion, mm -hmm. etc. Uh, yeah, you stated it very well. And this is something Israelis are more familiar with, obviously, because Haredim have long been very active in Israeli politics, trying to shape beyond even themselves. Uh, in America, it's rather new. And it really came, this is what you know, drew me to the subject. I wrote an article about two years ago called The Evangelicalization of Orthodoxy, where I talked about this growing affinity between white evangelicals and Orthodox and especially Haredi Jews. We see it in voting patterns for sure. So, for example, in America in 2020, about 90 percent, by my estimates, of non-Orthodox Jews voted for Biden, uh, whereas something like 50 or 60 percent of modern Orthodox Jews and 80, 90 percent or higher of Haredi Jews voted for Trump. And that's Wasn't there a big jump from the people who voted for Trump in 2016 and the ones who voted for Trump in 2020? There was a jump. How big depends on the place. Some places were, were very high in both elections. Uh, very famously, Curious Yol, the city that uh, David Myers and Nomi Stolzenberg recently wrote a book about, they voted 65-35 for Trump in 2016 and 99% for Trump. Uh, I think there were just a handful <laughs> of people who voted against Trump in, in 2020. And as you said, typically Haredi politics had been very practical-minded. They would work with either party for very tangible gains. And we see now the growth of an affinity with the sort of white evangelical uh, populist right, whatever word you want to use, the Trumpy right, if you want to call it that, that we didn't see in the past so much. And one thing that I'm interested in researching and I have been publishing about is why that is. Now, I think there is the evidence is not all in. To a certain extent, there does still seem to be maybe at the local level an interest in practical politics and getting tangible gains. But, you know, when you vote for the president, if you're sitting in Brooklyn, it doesn't really feel like it affects your life. That's really more a statement of ideology. When you vote for someone far more local, that could make a much bigger difference. And there you might think about local gains. But you can see it not just in voting patterns. I see it in the Orthodox press across the board, from the modern to the Haredi press. You can see this affinity. You can see it in statements of groups like the Gudis Yisrael in America, which in Amer unlike in Israel, where it's a political party in America, it's a lobbying group. Uh, so Gudis Yisrael, even the OU and the RCA, you can see the kind of affinity with that worldview. And there's a lot of reasons for it that we're trying to investigate. For example, I think one one factor that's uh, not talked about nearly enough is right-wing radio. Uh, in For the last 30 years, there's a lot of work that's been done on the impact of people like Rush Limbaugh that has moved the Republican Party radically to the right. Uh, a lot of I know scholars who've talked about how basically Rush produced Trump in many ways uh, and for a variety of reasons. But, you know, Orthodox Jews listen, including Haredi Jews, listen to that stuff. Uh, people who would never listen to the Internet or at least not admit it or television. But right-wing radio seems safer and was safer in many ways. And you could hide it in the car and so on uh, and seemed kosher. How does that line up, though, with other things that you've written about for us here in Haaretz, which is sort of the growing anti-Semitic, you know, undertones or sometimes not so undertones of uh, coming out of people like Tucker Carlson or Marjorie Taylor Greene, the anti-Soros stuff, you know, things that are really border on and sometimes cross the line into anti-Semitic tropes. And yet we're seeing the most visibly Jewish population in America having an affinity for these uh, for these people. A absolutely. I mean, part of it is uh, with the Haredi and America in particular, part of it is race, right? They're they're encountering uh, people of color the most, and it's in their mind going back in to Brooklyn, the, in Brooklyn, and going back to the 1960s. Um, that's the kind of uh, tension that they see, and that's where their blame goes. That's part of it. I think part of it also is they don't see this sort of anti-Semitism in that sense. Uh, the movement of um, a lot of 
Jewish political forces to equate anti-Semitism with anti-Zionism. And I, I said that on purpose that way, not only to equate anti-Zionism and anti-Israel uh, rhetoric with anti-Semitism, but the other way around, that this is the core of the issue. So that enables them to avoid the kind of, you know, you'll, you'll hear somebody say, how can they be anti-Semitic? They're so pro-Israel. And I think that's, even though the Haredim are not Zionist, but increasingly they've become, this is one of our conclusions of our paper, increasingly they become kind of Israelist, right? They're not Zionist. You won't see the Israeli flag uh, very much. And if at all, you won't hear the prayer for Israel in their synagogues. Uh, but they're increasingly supportive of the kind of greater Israel project of the settlements. They're increasingly anti-Palestinian, actively so. Um, and so this sort of affinity uh, with that worldview, I think, helps paper over issues of Tucker Carlson uh, and, and, you know, attacks on George Soros and so on. So we're lucky enough to have you here in Israel because you've come for an anti-Semitism conference yes. in uh, Jerusalem <laughs> sponsored by the Van Leer Institute. And also, while you were there, um, you attended a panel at the Begin Center intriguingly titled Anti-Semitism, WTF. <laughs> we all know what that stands for. Yes. Um, featuring Natan Sharansky, a former Israeli ambassador to the U.S., Ron Dermer, and Rabbi Shmuley Boteach. <laughs> uh, any epiphanies on modern anti-Semitism from those experiences? And uh, on that panel, you had some colorful commentary uh, on social media. So I want to ask you what your impressions were of that event. Yeah, that was that was a lot of fun to go to and also kind of difficult and painful to go to. The audience was certainly, it was lightly attended. Uh, mostly sort of American Anglos that are sort of, mod, you know, traditional conservative or modern Orthodox, that, that sort of range of religiosity, a lot of nit kippahs, uh, not a lot of covered hair. Uh, so that 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 bandwidth, uh, and they were very well received. Uh, some of it was expected. A lot, most of it was expected. Uh, Boteach, you know, very famously makes everything about himself. So when he got up there to introduce the, the the other speakers, it was all about how he knew this person, he knew this person, he knew this person. When he wanted to talk about Eli Wiesel, he first talked about how he was good friend with him, and and so on. And that was always just amusing because he's he's, he's so focused on his own self promotion. Um, I have a friend who often says he's a self made man who worships his maker, which is a great line. <laughs> Um, what about their takes on anti-Semitism? So I expected that they would focus on anti-Zionism, and they did. It, and it wasn't even an argument for them. It wasn't like this is something we have to focus on. It was just assumed this is what anti-Semitism was. They went an hour in talking on anti-Semitism, and they never talked about the right at all. Charlottesville, Pittsburgh, none of that came up. Uh, eventually, it was briefly mentioned Charlottesville because Don, Ron Dermer wanted to say what a great job Trump did at, at uh, Pittsburgh. And he said, unfortunately, he, he was this was his criticism of Trump. He missed an opportunity after Charlottesville. That was his way of handling the, the famous Trump uh, response to Charlottesville uh, of both the both sides comment. So it was really about anti-Zionism and about the left. And I expected that to a certain extent. Uh, I didn't, there were some surprises. Um, Sharansky, who is, of course, uh, I mean, he's a hero in many ways. He's become a figure on the, on the nationalist right. He was the moderate voice. I mean, it opened up with, with, with Boteach, who liked to, <laughs> to yell a lot into the microphone. Boteach was trying to say, for example, don't you think, you know, that it's unsafe for me as a Jew to walk around Jerusalem compared to when I was in Abu Dhabi? And side note, he was bragging about how he's invited to Abu Dhabi. But here in Jerusalem, I can't even walk around safely with a, with a, with a yarmulke. And, and Sharansky just sort of looked at him and saying, what are you talking about? It's the safest place in the world. It's wonderful. I mean, there's terrorism sometimes, which you have to you know, deal with, but it's not because of anti-Semitism. You're completely safe here. And he kept pushing back on that, and Sharansky wasn't biting on that. Uh, later on, he said, you know, uh, he said he quoted Eli Wiesel saying this famous uh, Talmud that's often pulled out of context, Asif, Sona, as uh, Yaakov, that non-Jews 
all hate Jews. Don't you think it's in their heart? And you could sort of see in Sharansky's eyes, like, what do you, what, how did I get to this panel? And he said, no, I don't think that's true at all. He says, of course there is. They really emphasize the eternality of anti-Semitism. The opening introduction said anti-Semitism goes back to the very beginning of Jews. In fact, it goes back before there were Jews. I don't quite know what that means exactly, how you have anti-Semitism before Jews, but he, he insisted on it. And Sharansky said, look, it's, it's an, it's, it is an old problem that, that evolves, but no, not all Jews hate, not all non-Jews hate Jews, and it, you know that's just ridiculous. So would those guys go back to you and throw it back in your face and say, oh, all you care about is anti-Semitism on the right and you ignore it on the left? I mean, they, they might, although I would say two things to that. Uh, one thing is I don't. I, I am concerned about anti-Semitism on the left. I often say, whenever you have someone who is demonizing Israel in the way you demonize George Soros or, or Rothschild, right? So if you have a conspiracy theory in which you say Israel's got its tentacles and it's running the world, it's causing climate change, it's causing Russia to invade Ukraine or something like that, that's just anti-Semitism. I don't even like the phrase crossing the line. I just like to say these are two different phenomena: criticizing Israel, right or wrong in your criticism, uh, or describing Israel as the actor of a global conspiracy, which is basically classic anti-Semitism. These are two different things. So first of all, I, I do call that out. But I mean, that's not the main threat to Jews in America today. There's no doubt about that. Now, Europe might be different to a certain extent, but in America, for sure, that's not, that's not the main threat. Uh, the, 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 the right wing has become totally normalized in America, and that's very dangerous. And they never spoke about that in the slightest. Tucker Carlson never came up, for example, things like that. Uh, but the thing that actually surprised me the most was Ron Dermer. Uh, his response a lot of the time was really sort of neo-Kahanist. I mean, he was using language that he, he maybe didn't realize it. It's become so normalized. But that was straight out of Kahana. Uh, his response about anti-Semitism was about Jewish power, was about making the anti-Semites pay. You know, it was a lot of violent language, uh, which is sort of a fascist way of talking. Uh, he talked about, he called Jewish intellectuals Jewish Hellenists, which is straight out of Kahana, um, and, all that, and, and other examples as well. That shocked me and even scared me to a certain extent. Yeah, especially since he used to be called sort of um, uh, whis the, the BB whisperer, that he was the guy who was, you know, the, the conduit to Netanyahu's brain. Look, I mean, in common. I mean, we, we've seen Kahanism normalized with, with Ben Gvir and his whole party, right? And they're now anticipated, if there was an election today, to have eight, nine, ten seats. But we also see it now with Likud as well, right? We see normalized. Likud said if they come back to power, they're going to deport families of uh, citizen families, Palestinian citizens, who have someone in the family who commits a terrorist act. They're going to jail people for the Palestinian flag and things like that. So we see it completely normalized. And, and I, you know, I, I know intellectually it's been normalized. I read it in the papers. I read Haaretz and other papers and I see this language. But to see Ron Dermer kind of come out with this language uh, is quite scary. Uh, for them, anti-Semitism really is about the Palestinians and anti-Israel. It's all equated. Uh, and they want violence. They said we have to be, Ron Dermer was screaming, we need law and order. His concern about Palestinians was that there's not an, it, the, the policies have not been draconian enough. He wants harsher treatment of Palestinians uh, to teach them who's in charge. Sounds like he's been hanging out with Trump. <laughs> uh, there was a lot of uh, connections there, that kind of language of strength and so on. Um, yeah, a lot of not not as much from Sharansky. Sharansky even spoke at one point about the importance of liberalism and humanism. And I thought, oh, this is positive. This could go in a good direction. But the other two were having nothing of that. They, they wanted nothing to do with that.
Okay, Josh, to wrap up, since I do know you personally, all of these topics that we've been discussing kind of theoretically and on an academic plane, you also relate to them uh, in your day-to-day life. You are a practicing Orthodox Jew. In the past, you've lived in the ultra-Orthodox communities, both in the United States and in Israel. So these changes in the society, the political leanings um, that you're observing, you're also, you know, observing, I guess, every day as you go uh, to pray at synagogue. I mean, how has this affected you and especially someone who has clear leftist political leanings trying to operate as a part of the Orthodox American Jewish community. Yeah, that's a, you know, there's a, there's a comment people make sometimes that all scholarship is autobiographical. You know, if you spend time working on something, very often it's because it's important to you. Uh, by the way, I have to say, I don't want to take credit. I, I, I put on tefillin every day. Uh, I often am in my room. So I don't want to claim I go to synagogue every day. But I will say this. I, I've been Orthodox, or I've been in the Orthodox world for 30 years. About half of those were in Chabad, including in Beitar Elite and elsewhere. Um, and I have traveled a lot through the Orthodox world in the last 30 years, in the Litvish world, Lithuanian sort of black hat world, the Hasidic world, and so on, and in modern Orthodox world as well. And my concern, I, I'm concerned about what's going on with Orthodoxy. I think there's a lot of potential in Judaism for meaning and authenticity that's perfectly humanist and wonderful to make the world a better place. And it concerns me very much that so much of Orthodoxy has decided to, and there, there were, by the way, have been moments in Orthodox history where this happened. And I'm thinking of the immediate post-war period, uh, people like Liechtenstein and others who really were pushing these visions, uh, the old Maimad party that you probably know about. Right. Um, but it seems to me they've gone in a very different direction, uh, a kind of neo-Kahanist direction. And I see it in two ways. So you have in the Haredi world where you don't really have Zionism, but you do have this sort of comfort with Israelism and a lot of right-wing proclivities, right? The patriarchy, well, of course they're comfortable with patriarchy. Of course, uh, you know, the growing antith- uh, you know, hatred of, of, homos- of, of gay rights, of abortion access in America, things like that. But then in the modern, as you go to the modern world, uh, the modern Orthodox world, where you see better ideas about uh, trying to find halakhic ways of, of moving towards egalitarianism, uh, even gay rights and things like this, uh, but when it comes to Israel, the Zionism becomes a religious Zionism, and all of a sudden the antipathy to Palestinians' rights as, as equal human beings becomes far more pronounced. And so you have this alliance, really, uh, between modern Orthodox and Haredim around this shared antipathy to Palestinians and shared antipathy towards equality between the river and the sea. Uh, and that's my concern. What I'm trying to forge as best I can is to find a community that takes halacha very seriously, that takes Jewish life as you'd call it Orthodox life, although I don't like that word anymore, but sort of a Shomer Shabbat, an observant Jewish Shomer Kashrut, an observant Jewish life seriously, but also takes the, the prophet seriously, takes humanism seriously and equality very seriously. And that's, that's very hard to come by. It exists, mm-hmm. but it's very hard, very hard to come by. And I think that's because of the, the destructive uh, quality of nationalism that needs to stay separate from religion. In this regard, I'm very attracted to uh, the late Yishai Leibovich. Uh, he had a lot of problematic aspects to him. <laughs> I think calling him grumpy is an understatement, but his his ability to see the danger of mixing nationalism and orthodoxy, I think was prescient and important. Uh, so I pull that out from him and, and it's very important to me. And I'd like to see that, I'd like to see Jewish observant life go in that direction in the future if I, if we can make it happen. Well, I really don't mean to be flip when I say good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, at least for myself, I'd like, you know, to be able to pray. Is the famous line from um, David Weiss-Alivni that he can't pray where he talks and can't talk where he prays. I'd like to pray and talk in the same place if I can. And we're all, we're all striving for that, I guess, somehow. Professor Joshua Shanes, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. It was a delight. 
And that wraps things up for this edition of Haaretz Weekend. Many thanks to Amir Tibon and Joshua Shanes. And thank you to producer Maya Ben-Nissan and editor Shani Aviram. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer. Until next time, Shalom from Tel Aviv. <laughs>